92.3 FM W222CD Louisville and 106.9 WVEZ FM HD2 St. Matthews Louisville, a pure radio station. Hello, welcome to The Word Diet. My name is Eric Schonsberg. With this show, I hope to help people read and understand the amazing Word of God. The show is named for my latest project, The Word Diet, which is reading a chapter a day for a year from the Bible to understand the Ark of the Scriptures. The Word Diet is good as a devotional, but ideally it's done in groups or at least with a partner. And anyone can read it. Uh, People with experience with the scriptures, that's fine. But really, the plan is aimed at novices and people who have struggled to read the Bible in the past. In the church, we often encourage people to read the Bible, but we really don't do much to help them. And so the word diet was conceived as a way to help people actually read the scriptures in a profitable manner. Uh, for the show, we're starting studying the book of Revelation, and it's a challenging book, but it's a great book. It's understandable and applicable, and uh, I hope I can help you uh, understand it a bit better and apply it to your lives. Please read along with us before, during, or after listening to the show. On last week's show, we talked about the word Revelation as we did an introduction to the book. Ironically, the book is meant to reveal, and even though people find it confusing and, find, and believe that it really doesn't reveal, it confuses, it's meant to reveal. It's meant to reveal something of Christ, as the rest of the Bible is. Uh, it's revelatory of the Old Testament, with hundreds of references to Old Testament passages, and really it's meant to reveal the hope that we have in Christ Jesus. That's its top priority. We also talked about the literary genres or types in the book of Revelation. There are many. It's a very complex book in terms of its style. And the most interesting one we talked about there is apocalyptic, which is a style of literature that describes a messed up world, God intervening, and then making the world right, or at least a lot better. And apocalyptic is known for its use of numbers, symbols, and hyperbole, or exaggeration. And then we talked about the first eight verses of Revelation. And I think the two highlights for me to bring out here would be the blessing in verse three uh, of reading and reflecting and hearing the word of God. And that when we do that, as the passage ended, uh, John reflecting on who God is naturally led to praise and worship. And then the last thing is in verse eight, Uh, The last word we read was almighty. And for the reader, for John's readers, that would have been in contrast to the mighty Caesar. Yes, Caesar is mighty. Yes, he's persecuting you. But remember that God is almighty. And that's a theme that we're going to talk about a lot today as well. On today's show, we're going to do the rest of chapter one. So that takes us from verses nine to 20. And as time permits, uh, I'll do an start into an introduction of chapters two and three, but I don't think we'll get far, if at all, on that. Lord, be with us today as we open the Bible, in particular the book of Revelation. We know it's a challenging book. We pray that your spirit would be with us as we read and listen and try to understand you better, what you want for us and from us. Amen. Please pray for the Pure Radio Network and this show uh, throughout the week. We would appreciate that. Okay, we're going to take a break before we get rolling. Stay tuned, and we'll be back in a minute. Pure Radio, reaching all of Kentuckiana with the pure gospel of Jesus. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're going to start in Revelation 1-9, 
where it says, I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And we're going to spend a lot of time on this verse. It doesn't look like much at first, but there's a lot to uh, unpack here. The verse describes who John is, how he describes himself, and then it gets into where he is and why, and both of those are crucial. Let's start with who he is, and really, let's start with who he is not. Who does he not describe himself as? It's a useful uh, tool when you're reading scripture, not only to read what's there, but what isn't there. Why doesn't John describe himself in other ways? What else could John have used to describe himself, and why doesn't he do that? Well, for one thing, he was a great leader in the early church. He was an apostle of Jesus in his inner circle. So he doesn't describe that. Why is that? It's not relevant, for one thing, and it would take the focus off Christ. Matthew Henry says he seems to value himself upon his relation to the church rather than his authority in it. And so John is not prone to brag about himself or to um, make himself bigger than he needs to be for this moment. Uh, Second, he speaks as sparingly as possible about Patmos. Uh, There's no specific reasons given for the exile. He's not dwelling on negative circumstances. Now, when you read commentators, you get a different feel for what Patmos would have been like. Uh, Some people call it the Roman Alcatraz, uh, but in Hank Hanegraaff's book, The Apocalypse Code, he argues that that's not the case. He says it's not uncommon for commentators to describe Patmos as a rocky penal colony, an Alcatraz of sorts. This, however, is far from true. It had an inviting harbor. Uh, It was a place of commerce and convenience for subjects of the empire traveling from Rome to Ephesus, the epicenter of Caesar worship. It boasted a civic center or gymnasium that doubled as a training center for athletes and a forum for intellectual pursuits. It featured major temples to such gods as Apollo and Artemis, as well as a statue to Hermes. Uh, Hanegraaff also argues that John was likely not imprisoned. In fact, he may well have had access to the entire 30-mile circumference of a well-developed island during the entirety of his exile. So yes, he's in exile, but it's not really clear uh, how rough uh, the, the bondage itself is. It's never fun to to be uh, imprisoned or in exile, but how tough were the circumstances? In any case, he doesn't focus on that. And I think for us, that's a a great lesson uh, for for a couple reasons, right? For one thing, are the circumstances we find ourselves in negative really at all? Uh, A lot of times we look at something and uh, focus on the negative, but in fact, there's a lot of positive that's available here. Uh, Second, I think This is pointing us to another huge reality in the Christian life, which is that uh, God is much more concerned about our character than our circumstances, much more concerned about our faith than the events that we find ourselves in. And for John, he's gotten to write this wonderful letter and the book of Revelation. Uh, His exile really is a small thing. Uh, The pain he's going through is minor compared to the glory of what he's going to experience in this book and what he passes on to us. I love the passage in James 1, verses 2 through 4, where it says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. 
Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. He also doesn't get bent about the people who put him there. Uh, He takes man's nature as given. He doesn't get upset. He doesn't list the people who are responsible for this injustice. He just doesn't focus on that. And I think too often we get bent about uh, the people around us who are in the world. They're not believers. They've not embraced the grace of God. And so they're not likely to extend that to other people. And so uh, I think John is also modeling that for us as well, that we should focus on where we are, honoring God in in the circumstances we find ourselves in, rather than focusing on the negatives. So what John doesn't say here is drawing attention to himself and his circumstances. This is not a woe is me party at all, but he does enough here to establish his credibility, get a little bit of empathy, but also maintaining humility rather than drawing attention to himself. So how does John describe himself? Well, he says he's your brother and companion in three things that are ours in Christ Jesus. Let's focus on the three things first, and then we'll come back to the phrase, phrases that bracket those three things. He mentions three things. The first is suffering, right? He's their brother and companion in suffering. Second Timothy 3.12 promises that everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. It's promised. And so John acknowledges that. John is experiencing that, and he talks about that as part of his identity with the people to whom he's writing the letter. Romans 8.18 says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. There's that word revealed again. 1 Peter 4.12 and 13, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on you to test you as though something strange were happening to you, but rejoice inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. And so again, we're back to this theme of revelation as uh, God's glory is going to be revealed in Christ, but God's glory is also going to be revealed in us. And a lot of times that's just going to be in heaven, but many times it's, it's revealed to us on earth. You'd think that John has a sense that what's happening to him on Revelation is part of this great plan, and he, he un- surely understands some of that. Yes, he's been banished to this island. Uh, maybe he's enduring some hard labor, uh, but he also has this opportunity to be alone with Christ, uh, to, to pen this letter, to experience the visions that he does. And so he puts the suffering in its appropriate context. Yes, I'm suffering, but... In, in the context of God's glory and what God's going, going to do through me, uh, then it's just not uh, that big of a deal. So don't ignore suffering, but put it in its proper context. The second uh, word that John gives here is God's kingdom, your brother and companion in God's kingdom. Second Timothy 2.12 says, if we endure, we will also reign with him. And certainly that uh, is referred to in heaven, and you could uh, see some examples of this in an earthly sense as well, right? That God's kingdom on heaven and on earth uh, is an area where believers have opportunity to reign with him. And the third is patient endurance. This is a big phrase in Revelation. It comes up four times. Uh, In Revelation 3.10, it comes up as something that God commands. And then in 13.10 and 14.12, it comes up as a call to be obeyed. 
2 Timothy 2, 9 and 10 gets to similar things. Uh, Paul says there, I am suffering even to the point of being chained like a criminal, but God's word is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they too may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Paul endures everything for the sake of the elect and the, the salvation that is in Christ Jesus for eternal glory. And so Paul patiently endures, and that's exactly what John is doing and what he encourages his people to do. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3, very similar. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles, and let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so, so that you, you will not grow weary and lose heart. And again, this focus on perseverance, endurance that John is going through. Two more thoughts on this idea of patient endurance. I think a lot of times we would rather just get out of something to escape it. And so we attempt that or we spend our time wishing that we could escape something. Instead, our focus should be to go through trials in a way that honors God. Again, our focus is not to be circumstance, but character. It's not to be the happenings of happiness, but a a contentedness and joy. Remember verse 3 mentioned a blessedness. Verse 4 was peace. And both of those, as we talked about last week, are robust terms. It's not just, you know, I hope you feel better, some wishful thinking. This blessedness, this peace is meant to be a deep thing for us. One discipline I like to recommend is based on Daniel 3, and that's where the the three friends of Daniel are commanded to bow before Nebuchadnezzar's uh, idol, his statue, and they refuse, and they say, in essence, to Nebuchadnezzar, we think God's going to deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we're not going to bow. And their focus is not on the circumstance. Their focus is not on what might happen to them but their focus is on obedience, commitment, and what John describes here as patient endurance. And so I like to recommend for people, especially if you feel like you're struggling with this, if your prayers have been to get out of something uh, for the next day or week, pray to stay in it and pray for the strength to go through it in a God-honoring manner. And I think you'll find that it changes your perspective, changes uh, how you, you go through the thing. The second point I want to make here is that when we think of patient endurance, a lot of times it's in a way where we're just hunkering down and trying to get through it. Uh, But the term here means something more than just enduring. It means prevailing. That might be a term that would be uh, more in line with what John is looking for here. I remember hearing uh, G. Gordon Liddy talk about this years ago, and he said, He didn't like when people use surviving something, whether it was cancer or some trial. He said, the goal is not to survive, it's to thrive. And that's always stuck with me because I think a lot of times uh, people use the language of survival. Uh, They have a mentality of survival and survival's fine as far as it goes, but it's really not the goal. The goal is that we would thrive through difficult circumstances. A.W. Tozer says, endurance is not just the ability to bear a hard thing, but to turn it into glory. And William Barclay says, a spirit that can bear things not simply with resignation, enduring, grimly waiting for the end, 
but with blazing hope to lead to greater glory, radiantly hoping for the dawn, the spirit of courage and conquest which leads to gallantry and transmutes even suffering into glory, a quality which keeps a man on his feet with his face to the end, a virtue which can convert the hardest trial to glory because beyond the pain it sees the goal. And that's really what our aim is in this. There's more to say about verse 9, but we need to take a break. Please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org to pray, provide, and promote the work of this ministry and its peace in God's kingdom. Spread the word about Pure Radio and this show. We'll be back in a minute. Dependable, trustworthy, Pure Radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. Okay, welcome back to the Word Diet. We're in uh, Revelation 1, 9 through 20 today, and we spent the first segment on verse 9, and we still have some work to do. So let's uh, get cracking. We talked about the phrase in the beginning that, uh, of verse 9, that it says, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus. And we talked about the suffering kingdom and patient endurance, the middle of that phrase. But I want to come back to the parts that bracket it. John says, I'm your brother and companion in those things, and those are ours in Jesus. So a couple thoughts here. One is that the in Jesus provides John's purpose and his perspective. We can be brothers and companions in those things, but if it's not rooted in Jesus, uh, that's not going to work well, and it's not going to be consistent with uh, what God wants for us in his kingdom. So the in Jesus part is absolutely crucial. John also speaks as their brother and companion. You know, John is speaking here as a prophet of God, and he'll talk about that quite a bit. But here he's emphasizing that he's a fellow suffering servant for Christ. I think it's important to realize, especially for leaders, that they need to be able to empathize. You know, appeals to authority are fine, and they have their place. But the need for leaders to empathize and to signal that is also really important. William Barclay says, Men will never listen to one who preaches endurance from the comfort of an easy chair, nor to one who preaches heroic courage to others while he himself has sought a prudent safety. And so it's important for leaders to be transparent with their struggles, to talk about the trials they're going through. Uh, They're both leaders, but they're also fellow companions and brothers, and we need to balance both of those. So these are key themes in Revelation all throughout verse 9. This is actually a very, very important verse uh, and emphasized elsewhere in Scripture. We need to focus on Christ and God's Word, and we need to uh, provide support, companionship, and empathy for believers around us. It's crucial to have an eternal perspective and to promote unity, especially in times of trouble. One more verse to leave with you, Matthew 16, 18. Christ says, and I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overcome it. And when trouble comes, and trouble would come for Peter, Peter, uh, trouble has come for John here, they could rest on the promise that, that the trouble would not overcome them, ultimately, or certainly the church. The second half of verse 9 is also really cool. He's answering here why he's being persecuted. Why is he in exile on the Isle of Patmos? And the answer is pretty 
pretty short and a cool phrase. He says it's the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. And we actually find that phrase or something similar three other times in Revelation, chapter 1, verse 2, chapter 6, verse 9, chapter 12, verse 17. So this pairing is really important to John and Christ revealing himself to John. Well, think about the combination first, right? The word of God is scripture and the testimony of Jesus is our includes our personal testimony about how Jesus has moved in our life. It's both truth and spirit, using the language of John 4.24. So there's this objective word of God, and there's this more subjective testimony of Jesus in our life. And it's important that we have both of those as we're going through life and as we're communicating our faith with others. Now, in a lot of contexts, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus is no trouble at all. So that still doesn't quite explain John's current situation, right? It's in comparison to emperor worship that the trouble comes. The word of God and the testimony of Jesus compared to what the Romans were requiring uh, from Christians in terms of worshiping Caesar was the big deal. Now, worshiping the king or the emperor is... Uh, an old tradition. It's been done for a long time, but it was particularly tempting in Rome because they had achieved what is known historically as Pax Romana, a time of impressive peace and prosperity. One of the ironies of this is that Pax Romana is what initially allowed Christianity to spread so easily. If you think about when Christ came, part of the reason for the timing is that it comes during Pax Romana when it would have been relatively easy for Christianity to spread. And so it had its benefits, but it also led to implicit and even explicit worship of the state. In 195 BC, we have record of the first temple for a Caesar in Smyrna. By 50 AD, Caesar worship was the dominant religion. Now, often it was political or civil and cultural, but it could have and often did have religious components. You might think of uh, what's called American civil religion today and what used to be uh, more dominant a few decades ago, uh, holding up America as an ideal. And America is a great country, but taking that too far becomes a form of civil religion. And uh, a much more extreme version of that is what you find in Rome at this time. Now, usually the religion was embodied in a leader, and some of them took it way too seriously. Of the first 11 Caesars, only Caligula and Domitian demanded explicit worship. Uh, Domitian was said to have an insane jealousy, and he required people to call him, to address him by our Lord and God Domitian, in both writing and verbally. Now, the Caesars didn't mind theistic worship. That's not the problem. But the Christians also were not willing to bow a knee to Caesar, and the leaders interpreted that as political disloyalty. And ironically, they even saw it as atheism. And you can kind of imagine that from their perspective, right? If they are God and we're not acknowledging that God, uh, the Christians were actually being accused of atheism. And especially as the empire began to fade, Roman leaders couldn't afford to have people implicitly challenging their authority by referring to anyone else as number one. And so it's that God is preeminent becomes the problem. And that's why John is focused on the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. When he does that and puts God above Caesar, 
that's not going to work for the Roman government. Okay, let's move on to verses 10 and 11. The drama uh, and its action begins with John as narrator and as the first actor on the stage. Verse 10 says, On the Lord's day I was in the Spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet which said, Write on a scroll what you see, and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. So verse 10 says, On the Lord's day. This is the only New Testament use of this phrase. Uh, can be taken figuratively. Uh, he may have been transported in a vision to what is usually called the day of the Lord. Uh, so maybe it's used in a way that's synonymous with that. Uh, it's also certainly possible to take this phrase literally, referring to the first day of every week, which would have been Sunday. Uh, and, and perhaps this is a subtle poke at Caesar because... Uh, they had a thing called Emperor's Day, which was the first day of every month. And so for John to reference the Lord's Day may be a bit of a challenge to that, the first day of every week. Verse 10 continues that it's in the Spirit, and this points to the essential role of the Holy Spirit in this revelation, and in, really in all other biblical writings. 2 Timothy three sixteen and 17 says, All Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Spirit is mentioned four times with respect to writing, and it introduces the four visions that John will have throughout the book. So John was on Patmos, but he was in the Spirit. And Barclay says here, and if he is in the Spirit, even on Patmos, the glory and the message of God will come to him. Then John mentions a voice like a trumpet. This is language that is uh, in the Old Testament, Exodus 19:16, and a few places in the New Testament as well. And then in verse 11, it's the first of 12 commands given to John to write what he sees. So this is his first vision, and he's instructed to send it to a list of seven churches who are the principal audience of this book. The book is meant for all time and for all churches, but the initial principal audience of the book are these seven churches that are mentioned in verse 11, and this will be uh, revisited again in chapters 2 and 3. It's interesting that he's told to write down what he sees, and verse 12 takes it a step further. It says, I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And see the voice is kind of a strange phrase. Uh, it's a, a common apocalyptic phrase. But for us, uh, I think we take it as figurative for wanting to get the message. He's turning around to see it. And God's requiring some effort here. He's not going to just put it uh, right in front of him. He's going to require John to turn and see what's happening. And what's John going to see? Well, not a voice, but he's going to see Christ and his churches. And we'll talk about that after the break. During the break, please consider uh, liking Pure Radio on Facebook and friending me there. We will post podcasts on Facebook and SoundCloud when they become available. And you can interact with me on my Facebook when the program is posted there. Would be happy to handle your questions and comments. We'll be back in a minute. Become a P3 Partner. P3 Partners are pure radio listeners who pray for pure radio each day, provide financial support to our programmers, Promote Pure Radio by telling others about us and sharing us on Facebook. Ready to get started? Go to pureradio.org and click on the P3 Partners button and register. 
partners have privileges. Get books, DVDs, CDs, devotional materials, invitation-only access to Pure Radio events, and other experience opportunities only available to P3 partners. Pray, provide, and promote Pure Radio. Become a P3 partner today. Welcome back to The Word Diet. We're in Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20 today, and we left off in verse 12, where John is turning around to see the voice that was speaking to him. And so we want to talk about what did he see in verse 12. Verse 12 says, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and with a golden sash around his chest, and so on. So we'll talk about the details of what he looks like in just a minute. But let's focus on the lampstands and the one standing there before we get to uh, exactly what he looks like. The lampstands, uh, there's seven of them, and again, the number seven should alert us to the possibility of both figurative and literal. Uh, so seven churches are identified already in verse 11, and they'll be identified explicitly in verse 20. We're told in verse 20 that these are, the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Uh, but we can also read this figuratively as well, right? That seven stands in for ch- all churches for all time. Uh, the number seven is not random, but it connects to the use of numerology in the literature style of apocalyptic. Of course, they're golden, which implies their purity and value. But I think the most interesting thing is that they're lampstands, right? And think about what a lampstand does. A lampstand holds forth rather than produces the light. Uh, John talks about this a lot in his epistle. For example, chapter 9, verse 5 of the Gospel of John, Christ describes himself as the light of the world. Now, Matthew 5, 14 describes us as the light of the world, that we're a city on the hill. But really, the, the stronger picture is that, look, we don't produce light. We're just holding it forth like a lampstand. I really like Philippians 2, 14 through 16 on this. It says, Do everything without grumbling or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a warped and crooked generation. Then you will shine among them like stars in the sky as you hold firmly to the word of life. And I think that passage is great, right? Because Paul writes that from prison. Uh, He's enduring trials. John is writing this from exile trying to encourage believers who are dealing with difficulties. And so all this is to be done without grumbling or arguing uh, within a warped and crooked generation. And if we are able to do that in the midst of a dark background, we will shine among them like stars in the sky. And so that's the charge that John has for his readers as well. Now, the lampstand is also the first of many references to the temple, the tabernacle, and its furniture. Now, in the temple, it was a single lampstand with seven lamps. So when you take the two pictures together, you have seven lampstands referring back to a single lampstand. It's a picture of unity in the church, right? That the seven are one, that the seven are to act uh, as one, have the same agenda, uh, the same unity of the spirit through the bond of peace. And then verse 13 uh, gives us a description of what turns out to be Christ, like a son of man, again, citing Daniel 7.13, which John has done just a few verses earlier. And it's Christ's most common label for himself. And what I love the most about verse 13 is the prepositional phrase, among, that this uh, 
that Christ is among the lampstands. He's among the churches. It's a picture of great intimacy and love. And it's especially powerful in light of the description that we're about to read in verses 13 through 16. The amazingly powerful being that's depicted in 13 through 16 is walking among the lampstands. And that's really the, the tension we find throughout Scripture, that God is powerful, but he cares. He's the, crea- he's the creator, but he wants relationship with us. He's the amazing son of man who's dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet, and so on and so forth. But he's also walking amongst the lampstands. And if we don't get that combination correct, we're not going to understand God for who he is and what he wants for us and from us. We've got to recognize his greatness and his power but we've also got to recognize that he loves us and wants relationship with us. As Bruce Metzger puts it, Christ is not an absentee landlord. You know, the common phrase for this is deism, that God created the world, but then he just kind of goes off somewhere and does something else. But in fact, the Christian God wants relationship with us, and this is wonderfully depicted in verse 13. I also like what J. Vernon McGee says about this. He says that this depicts Christ's ministry of inspection, that he's providing protection and oversight to the churches. We think of Christ for his most famous ministries of intercession to save us at the altar, using temple language, uh, and his ministry of intervention to clean and wash us at what would have been in the temple, the washing basin. But here he's judging the churches by their fruit. He's protecting, he's overseeing, he's inspecting. And uh, Christ is is not just the intercessor. He's not just the one who washes washes and cleans. He's not just the God of individuals. He's the God of churches and ultimately the church. Okay, so that takes us to the description of Christ in this passage. So let's start about halfway through verse 13. It says, he was dressed in a robe reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. His head and hair were white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. Wow. Well, let's talk through uh, some of the details here. So first of all, verse 13, he's in a robe or garment down to his feet. And think about who would wear a robe or garment in the scriptures. Well, first of all, the high priest would. So again, we have a priestly temple reference here. Uh, Also, divine messengers and prophets would often wear robes and garments. So think of uh, angels. And Christ is the supreme messenger. And princes and kings Uh, are depicted in the scriptures as wearing robes and garments. And interestingly, Christ fits all three. Christ is priest, prophet, and king. Verse 13 also said he's wearing a golden sash. Again, a number of references here are possible. Uh, The high priest wore a ceremonial sash, we're told. Uh, Dignitaries would wear them as decoration. Or it could be considered a military girdle or band around his chest. Uh, Daniel 10 talks about something similar around the waist, but things this sort of thing was often worn around the chest as well. And so it's a picture of Christ as girded or ready for pure and perfect action in amazing strength. In verse 14, he's depicted as having a white head and hair. So a number of comparisons here. You can compare this to wool and snow, uh, the purity of that. 
Uh, it's a picture of eternality. Daniel 7 verse 9 calls him the ancient of days, but he's not old. So I think when we think of old or ancient, we think of doddering and falling apart. And of course, that's not what we should have in mind for God. I love what G.K. Chesterton says about this. He says, because children have abounding vitality, because they are in spirit fierce and free, therefore they want things repeated and unchanged. They always say, do it again. And the grown-up person does it again until he is nearly dead. For grown-up people are not strong enough to exult in monotony. But perhaps God is strong enough to exult in monotony. It is possible that God says every morning, do it again to the sun, and every evening, do it again to the moon. It may not be automatic necessity that makes all daisies alike. It may be that God makes every daisy separately, but has never gotten tired of making them. It may be that he has the eternal appetite of infancy, for we have sinned and grown old, and our Father is younger than we. And I just think that's an amazing description from Chesterton, that God is the Ancient of Days, but it's not uh, the, the old and tired, right? It's that God is, in fact, younger than we are in his approach to life. He never gets tired of things. And so he's both the Ancient of Days, and in Chesterton's words, he's a lot younger than we are. The white head and hair are also a picture of dignity, a crown of glory, the purity, and the wisdom of his judgment. Later in verse 14, it talks about eyes like a blazing fire. In Daniel 10, verse 6, it refers to them as flaming torches. And this is a picture of his zeal and passion for justice and judgment, his piercing and penetrating insight into the hearts of men, and how effective churches are or are not in, uh, in the context of him walking amongst the lampstands. Hebrews 4, 12, and 13 is appropriate here, for the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered and laid bare before the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Verse 15 says that Christ has glowing bronze feet. It's a picture of a strong, steady, sure, solid foundation. He will not stumble or falter. Feet are also used to talk about bearing good news. Isaiah 52, 7 talks about how beautiful are the feet of, of Christ. And so the messenger uses those feet. But feet are also used for judgment, uh, that God's judgment, Christ's judgment here is perfect and heavy. Revelation 19.15 will say that he treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. Or even back to Genesis 3.15 and the first reference to Christ that he will crush the serpent's head. And so these feet are not bloody or pierced as with his first coming. There's no washing necessary. As Matthew Henry puts it, they're strong and steadfast, supporting his own interest, subduing his enemies, treading them to power to powder. For us, it's interesting, uh, an interesting analogy here that our feet glow with the light of the word. Psalm 119, 105 says, Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. The second half of verse 15 says he has a voice like the sound of rushing water. And this is language that we find twice in Ezekiel that John is borrowing here. You know, of course, God's and Christ's voice called the universe into existence. And Christ's voice raised people from the dead. 
And so it has this power, and we see that in the reference, right? The, the, the power of rushing water, the unrivaled authority of God and Christ and his gospel. It's especially for those who are near, but one of the beautiful things about rushing water is it can be heard from far away, too. If you think about ocean waves, waterfalls, floods, large rivers, uh, you can certainly hear their power close up, but uh, you can even hear them from afar. And, and water is also sovereign in a way. It's a great picture of that. We can't even stop a trickle of water very easily. You might have that problem in your basement. Or think about what a little stream of water can do to soil or to wear down rock. And so water is amazingly powerful. But water can also be really calming. Uh, water is life-giving. Christ refers to himself as, and the Spirit as living waters. And so water is a really a wonderful metaphor here that it can vary from uh, the still small voice to the thunderous. It can be both powerful and soothing at the same time. And again, we're back to this balance. Do we understand God as both powerful and loving, as both life-giving and amazingly powerful and sovereign at the same time? Do we, do we catch that combination? And water is a terrific metaphor for that combination. All right, we'll pick up with verse 16 after the break. Uh, While we're gone, if you would please consider becoming a P3 partner at pureradio.org. We'd love to have you join us in prayer, provision, and promotion. Uh, And please spread the word about Pure Radio uh, in your area and this show. We'll see you in a minute. Tune to us for the pure gospel on the radio. Pure Radio at 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2. All right, welcome back to the Word Diet. We're working our way through Revelation 1, verses 9 through 20 today, and we've reached verse 16 in the description of Christ. It says there that in his right hand he held seven stars. Now, if literal, that's an interesting picture, but it would indicate his sovereignty over nature. I remember teaching this in a Bible study one time, and, and someone said, well, holding one star is pretty good, but Christ is actually holding seven stars. And again, this is a picture of his sovereignty, that he's strong enough to do anything. Uh, again, later, he's going to be tender enough to wipe every tear from our eyes, Revelation 21.4. Uh, he's going to provide comfort for us, verse 17. It's uh, coming up here. It says, do not be afraid, but his sovereignty is what's in mind here in verse 16. But at the least, we need to read this figuratively. Uh, verse 20 is going to identify the stars as the angels of the churches, And angels can be heavenly or earthly messengers. The word means a messenger. And we're prone to think of it as a heavenly uh, being, but it can actually be used for earthly messengers. And uh, that's actually how it's being used here. We're told that in verse 20, that the angels of the seven churches are uh, the leaders and the messengers, probably. Probably the pastors and elders, those who are held accountable to and under the protection of God. I like what Herschel Hobbes says here. He says, when somebody jumps on the preacher, he ought to remember this. You're not just talking to a man. You're dealing with the Lord's anointed. Or as J. Vernon McGee puts it, I like to hear a pastor called an angel because sometimes they're called other things. So if you don't mind, I'll hold to that interpretation. And so I can just picture uh, McGee smiling as he says that. It's possible to read this as heavenly angels, but I think the, the stronger interpretation is of of pastors and elders, those who are over the churches that Christ is himself overseeing. Of course, these are in his right hand. Again, that's a, a picture for uh, a figurative picture for strength and control. 
uh, and righteousness. Two other observations I think are potentially very interesting. George Beasley Murray argues that this also alludes to the seven stars as the seven known planets at that time uh, and their supposed influence on the world and the seven stars on many Roman coins. And so uh, it could be that John is drawing a contrast here between the power of the planets and the power of Rome versus the true power of the Almighty God. And then Ray Robbins observes that this first vision is a night scene right, with the stars involved here, and he says it's fitting since we in the church are to be the lights shining in a dark world. And so uh, that's what's pictured here in verse 16. The description continues that a two-edged sword is coming out of his mouth. Of course, that's a picture from God, of God's word. I've already read Hebrews 4, 12, and 13. Uh, it implies inescapable retribution for unrighteousness and injustice. Isaiah 11, 4 says he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Uh, This is true for us as well. Isaiah 49, 2 says he made my mouth like a sharpened sword. And so if we uh, know how to wield the word of God from Hebrews 4, uh, we can act as God's emissaries in this regard. Not not delivering uh, uh, retribution, but uh, doing battle, so to speak, figuratively uh, within God's kingdom. And then verse 16 wraps up with his countenance. He had a face like the sun shining in all its brilliance. So this picture is Matthew 17's Mount of Transfiguration. Uh, It's reminiscent of Moses and his encounters with God uh, and that it was too much for him to bear. Again, we definitely have some hyperbole here, right? We had uh, uh, Christ's eyes and hair, which were shining, and, and then we had stars, and now we have the sun. So Uh, This can't all be true at the same time if you're taking it uh, literally. I also like what Matthew Henry says about the sun. He says, the same sun softens wax and hardens clay. And really, that's the punchline uh, for all of this, right? Uh, Christ is the sun, and what's the sun going to do to us, right? And what are we going to to allow it to do to us? Are we going to allow it to soften us like wax or to harden us like clay? A few things to note as we wrap up this section all of this is, is seen in light of a comparison to the power and authority of Rome, right? That that's how John's audience is supposed to understand Christ in light of the persecution that they're facing from mighty Rome. It's nothing compared to the almighty Jesus. Uh, second, the intensity of all this is in marked contrast to Christ's appearance uh, in his first coming. And so the second coming is going to be quite different. Even in his first coming, we, we misunderstand Jesus. I mean, he had some uh, spots where he was really, he was tough on the, on the uh, disciples, and he was really rough on the uh, Pharisees. You read Matthew 23, and it's hard to uh, imagine Jesus as uh, simply meek and mild. He's not simply a biblical Mr. Rogers. And finally, this passage is really important because each of the seven letters in Revelation 2 and 3, except Laodicea, will use a part of this description of Christ. So as you're rereading this, uh, commit some of it to uh, second-level memory because it's going to pop up again quite a bit in the next two churches. Their problems as churches and ours as individuals often stem from a too low view of Jesus. And if we can keep in mind the Jesus that's described here, in verses 13 through 16, we're much more likely to follow and obey and worship for that matter. And that's what we see John doing here in verse 17 as a response. Verse 17 says, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. 
So he's the prostrated servant. He gets to his hands uh, and knees and elbows, and he's just hitting the ground here. I like what Matt Proctor says about this. He goes, in Revelation 1, I'm overwhelmed by this glorious, dreadful vision of Christ. This is not the gentle Jesus with children on his lap. This Jesus speaks in Niagara thunder. He blazes with blinding supernova brilliance. This Jesus could play kickball with our planet. This Jesus could flick his finger and send our solar system spinning off into space. He is clothed in glory and majesty and splendor and power and authority. And this is not a Jesus in whose presence you can just casually stand around. This vision of Jesus washes over you, crushing you like a tidal wave and leaving you fighting for your life, your very breath. And John fell at his feet as though dead. And we read a passage like this and it's easy to skip over this as a bunch of adjectives and uh, a lot of noise, but just to, to dwell on that, picture it for a minute, and then we see John's response, and hopefully that brings us back to earth, so to speak, right? That we just, that Christ is so, so amazing. And think about who John is. I mean, this, that's why the, his response here is so powerful. Christ was his closest friend. Uh, he had already seen great miracles, and he had witnessed the glory of God at the Mount of Transfiguration, and yet still he hits the ground here. That's how blown away he is. It's been said that in every manner, God is immeasurably superior to us. And if we don't know that, we don't know God. I like what C.S. Lewis says here as well, that if we're looking down on others, we can't look up to God. It gets our priorities correct, that we look up to God. We don't see ourselves as above others or certainly above God. What's Christ's response? Then he placed his right hand on me and said, do not be afraid. So he was the prostrated servant. Now he's the revived servant. Christ says, do not be afraid. So we see here the tenderness of Christ. I mean, again, the amazing combination of what we saw in 13 through 16 with his tenderness and compassion at this point. Christ continues toward the end of verse 17. I'm the first and the last. I'm the living one. I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever and I hold the keys of death and Hades. Again, God's sovereignty, uh, who God is, amazing stuff here. 19 and 20, it says, Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now, what will take place later. The mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So a couple of things here. Notice that the words of instruction of verses 19 and 20 follow verses 17 and 18, the words of comfort and encouragement and the description of Christ. We've got to get verses 12 through 18 correct before it's time for 19 and 20. If we don't know who Christ is, don't understand both his power and his comfort, his sovereignty and his love, then we're not going to get the instructions right in 19 and 20. And then, as I mentioned before, the end of verse 20 lays out the interpretation of the vision of the lampstands uh, above, right? That the lampstands are the churches, and then the, uh, the angels, uh, likely the leaders, uh, there is depicted in verse 20. Verse 19 has an interesting phrase as well. It says, right there, for what you have seen, what is now, and what will take place later. And so uh, a brief introduction of some stuff we'll talk about later. There's many, many views of Revelation. As we've talked about, it's a many-faceted diamond. There's what's called the futurist view. And uh, it takes this verse as a basically a t- table of contents for Revelation. It sees these things as three. 
what you have seen, past tense, what is now, present tense, what will take place later, future tense. Now, Revelation can't be taken as purely chronological, but the futurist view takes, finesses some of that and basically sees Revelation as mostly chronological, and this verse is laying out uh, the order of operation, the table of contents, so to, so to speak, for Revelation. Other views uh, deal with verse 19 differently. They would say, write therefore what you have seen, and then adding a hyphen, what is now, what will take place. So that the visions are what is happening, and the visions are of the current and the future in some mix. So their interpretation of Revelation is not as chronological, a uh, different view, and they start there with verse 19. They read 19 differently than the futurists do. This is something we'll talk about a lot more in chapter 6, so don't, don't sweat it uh, for now, but wanted to make the point as we pass by this important verse. Let me wrap this up by reminding you of the context that they were being persecuted in the face of emperor worship. The result of this for many was martyrdom. In fact, John is the only apostle who is not martyred, and he went through a rough time. He was boiled in hot oil, and he was exiled, and finally released in 96 AD after Domitian's death. But they went through amazingly tough times and tough persecution in the face of emperor worship. So what will it cost us? Well, it's unlikely at least for most people listening to this, that they will have to deal with persecution of anything close to that. But we still endure some, right? And so the response is the same, that we're to to be obedient, to be faithful. And in doing that, we're going to enrage Satan, and we're going to warm God's heart. 3 John 4 says, I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. And John writes that of the people that he has raised in the faith, but it's true of God as well, that we can put a smile on God's face by our obedience and our faithfulness, especially in the face of difficult circumstances and persecution. I'm reminded of Psalm 73, where the psalmist talks about the prosperity of the wicked, and he's really struggling with this. But then he reaches the conclusion, the climax, uh, not the conclusion of the psalm, but the conclusion of the matter, right in the middle, verses 16 and 17. He says, when I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply till I entered the sanctuary of God, and then I understood their final destiny. And really, that's the the response for us as well, that the things of life can be deeply troubling. But when we enter the sanctuary of God, we understand those troubles in light of eternity. And to focus on that, to enter the sanctuary of God, to understand the final destiny is a key toward getting through Uh, those trials and those difficulties. The third stanza of an old hymn is uh, useful here too. It says, uh, this is my father's world. Oh, let me ne'er forget that though the wrong seems oft so strong, God is the ruler yet. And so the wrong does seem strong sometimes, but God is the ruler yet. Can we focus on that in the midst of trial, persecution, difficulty? The people of John's time were often 10 talent and with respect to persecution. And many of us are just one talent with respect to persecution. We're not really dealing with very much. And that's a mixed blessing. I mean, the, the blessing of persecution is that you stay more focused on God, that faith becomes something that you own, not something that's casual. But it doesn't really matter where we're at. We're called to be faithful with the talents we've been given. And for one talent, five talent, 10 talent, we're, we're called to be faithful in the midst of whatever difficulties we find ourselves in. Billy Graham said, we think of modern Christians living under totalitarian regimes as the only ones who must daily decide their ultimate loyalties, but it's not true. Every Christian 
decides daily to be loyal to Christ in the world he is building or to give in to this age and its values. Dear Lord, help us to focus on you. Help us to stand firm in the midst of whatever trials we come across. Help us to understand who you are, what you want from us, your power, but also your compassion. Lord, we love you, and we pray that we would follow you uh, well in the weeks to come. In Jesus' name, amen. We'll post the uh, podcast for this on Facebook and SoundCloud. Please interact with me on my Facebook when the program when the program is uh, posted there with any questions or comments you might have. We hope you'll join us next week on The Word Diet. Responsible, credible, pure radio, 92.3 FM and 106.9 FM HD2.